Howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hey, it's Scott. Welcome back to yet another exciting episode of Spin Magazine's Lip Service. Hope you all doing well. I hope March is treating you well. By the time you're listening to us, we have a lot of exciting shows that you might have just heard or are coming up. Alt-J just launched Wage War. Obviously, this show, Julian Lennon, so many great shows to come. I appreciate you tuning in. If you like the show, please make sure you tell a friend about the show. The show is free. It's available on all your streaming services, so it's very, very helpful for us to spread the word. So my next guest with his band, Corn, helped in creating a genre in the mid-'90s and early 2000s and helped to pioneer a new style of music and lifestyle with the new metal movement. He sold over 40 million records worldwide. Welcome into the show today, the lead singer of Corn and solo artist, Mr. Jonathan Davis. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Our show today is brought to you by the fine folks at Thursday's Boot Company. You guys have seen me rocking these boots in every other picture I have on Instagram. I'm always repping them. Thursday's Boots is a bootstrap startup that makes the best handcrafted boots and sells them direct to consumer at some of the lowest markups in the footwear industry. Thursday's Boots tagline is highest quality, honest prices because they use some of the best materials like full grain leather, supple glove leather lining, and gold standard Goodyear welt construction. Thursday's Boot Company sells their boots at prices starting at just $149 with free shipping and returns. They've been featured in all the best fashion press, from Esquire to GQ to Cosmo and Vogue. More importantly, they've gotten over 20,000 five-star reviews from real customers. Thursday's boots are perfect for people who understand quality and don't want to pay a high retail markup for great-looking pair of boots that are built to last. So check them out, at Thursday's Boots on Instagram. My favorite shoes, my favorite boots. You always see me repping them. You'll love it. Hey, howdy do, y'all. I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Hello. How are you, my brother? I'm good, bro. How are you? I'm good. Welcoming to the show, Jonathan Davis. Thanks for being here. No problem. This is uh, definitely the first interview I've done, Jonathan, late at night. So excuse me if I'm uh, getting my whereabouts now. I, mean, this, I guess you're somewhat nocturnal a little bit, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I like to prefer to stay up all night. <laughs> <laughs> so for and, you, you're probably just waking up at like 6 p.m. I'm like... No, actually, I get, up, I get up around like 2 now. Okay. I all do, right. Like sleep a lot later, but... I know. As we get older, I guess I need less sleep. It's weird. <laughs> but I guess you do your best work late at night too, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's when I'm up and around and like I can think. I love this. This is my first nocturnal interview, so it's great. I love that. That's great. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. You guys have been back and bigger than ever. 
Corn is doing great. Obviously, the new record, Rec Room, there's so much to go over. And I want to talk about the tour, the new record, and a little bit about This Is Your Life, because essentially that's what the show is about. So um, take me back to the beginning, if you don't mind. I mean, there's so much to go over with you, obviously, like I said. But you grew up in Bakersfield. That's where you are now, I guess, right? Yeah. And, uh, and tell me a little bit about how you grew up, Jonathan, and sort of, I, I know that you grew up a lot around music. I think your dad was um, a keyboardist, and you actually grew up playing drums first, right? Yeah, my dad played keyboards. He played in a lot of bands locally in, in nightclubs, because it was the 70s, it was the era of nightclubs. He uh, toured with some bands around the States, and after I was born, he did it up till I was like a three or four, and then he's like, he couldn't deal with the road anymore. So he uh, came home to be with me. He used to, he, he set up a band and he was playing nightclubs there, like I said, and I used to jam with him. I started playing drums when I was three. I got my first drum set. He would have practice at his apartments with his boys. And I'd jump on the drum set and start jamming out old tunes with him. And I actually got to go to the bars that he played. Amazing. And sometimes they'd let me come in and I'd play a couple songs. They'd give me a Shirley Temple and I had to get out because I was a minor. <laughs> but I was really, really young. And that started me on my musical journey. And my father then after that opened up a music store. And so I grew up in a music store and had a music school that he had too also. So I'd come home after school and grab a random instrument and ask one of the teachers, hey, can you show me just the basics on this? And I self-taught myself a bunch of different instruments. So I was just totally, music was everything. And Was it true that he played with Zappa and Buck Owens no, or was that all that was all. That's all like Zappa, no, but Buck, yeah. I mean, that's, he was part of that. Uh, Buck knew my family, knew my grandfather. Um, knew him um but actually at that that recording studio that he had buck studio which is our studio now across the street my dad hung out and it was gary paxton's studio mm. and so people would come to bakersfield because he had a studio and because he wanted to get him out of la so my dad was an assistant there and learned how to record and do stuff at that studio and then moved over to buck studio and that's where we met buck and he played with the buckaroos um sometimes later on but one of his best friends was buck's producer and so we knew them all growing up and it was just music all the time <laughs> in my life. Um, my mother. But interesting enough, it was sort of like Jesus Christ Superstar that got yeah. you into music at like three, oh, right? Like, yeah, because my mom was in it and my dad and then my soon to be stepfather. And the funny story is my stepfather was Judas. So <laughs> Judas to my dad and took my mom. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and I grew up in the theater, too, because at that time, I mean, uh, my uncle was was doing theater he had a show band called sunday afternoon and uh they toured all of the united states and that landed him a gig at disneyland he became the vice president of entertainment for disney he produced tons of shows at disney and went on to go into universal studios in, in in asia and just retired recently but i mean everybody in my family was musical we just grew up and that was part of our life but in terms of your musical journey, it's funny because uh, ironically enough, you didn't really grow up listening to metal. It was more, I know that uh -oh. you had a whole new romantic phase. Obviously, yeah. Duran Duran one of your favorite bands, the yeah. industrial phase. So walk me through a little bit about your musical journey. And when you, obviously there was Jesus Christ Superstar, but when you really got the bug to play music and, and that musical journey that you were led on. I mean, the first time I remember any kind of rock thing that I remember that sparked me was when I heard a whole lot of love from Led Zeppelin. Best. My uh, put that record on, and that kind of like, wow, I, I, that grabbed me somehow, and that sent me down that like, oh, I want to check what this has. And this, I was very, very young, and I actually have that console still to this day that I heard that first Led Zeppelin record on. I keep it amazing. And when I want to be inspired, that's like a, a 
an object that totally inspired me from my childhood that I still, and I have it in the studio. Sometimes I go sit and just stare at touch it, just get some inspiration. Cause it was like, it's like a good luck charm for me. I still have that thing. It's and amazing it, how those records hold up, by the way. I mean, they still right, sound so incredible. An amazing, amazing record. Yeah. And, and um, so then that, and then growing up as, as a child, my stepfather was totally in the old seventies funk. And my dad played in all these these bands and I, I listened to everything. So there wasn't necessarily any kind of certain style of music. I just listened to everything. And when I got into junior high, that's when I think sixth grade junior high is when MTV started. Mm. And actually MTV was MTV Bakersfield was a test market for that at the time. And I actually saw the first, when they came on the air and they played radios, radio killed the video star, video killed the radio star. I saw that and I sat my ass in front of that TV all the time and just watched all those videos and all those bands. And that just made me start thinking, I don't want to do this. I, I so want to do this. They only had like five videos at that point. So they kept repeating the same. Yeah, videos. it just kept going, but it was so cool. I mean, <laughs> yeah. no, it was so different. I mean, we, all we had was just listening to the radio and, and records. Yeah. So to see something actually on video, I was, I know it was, it was a big deal as a little kid, but it was a big deal to me. And just being around all that my whole life made me want to do this, but my father did it and my mother and the stepdad, but they all, my dad told me, you're not going to go into the music business. You need to find and get a real job <laughs> and all that stuff. So it made me want to do it more. <laughs> and when did the goth phase kick in? Obviously there's Christian death and oh, yeah, you know, Bauhaus and all those bands. And I think that you were actually even wearing like eyeliner to school at that point. Yeah, you that was bullied around. a little bit, right? Yeah, that was something. I the eyeliner stuff that started around when I was a freshman in high school. Um, I, you know, the first thing that started me on that, I'm trying to think. Um, I was doing a show, and it was this, at this church my dad went to, and we did this musical, and we went to um, whatever this church we were doing this this musical, and I was in it. And we stayed, the, band, the, the, the people that were in the cast, we all stayed at different people's houses. They like hosted us for the night. And we were at this house and a couple of me and my friends got hosted at this house. And the guy, I think it was a guy or girl, because um, have you ever heard this band? I know what you're talking, I mean, you ever heard this? It's called Depeche Mode. And they played <laughs> the last one was Rumors. And I heard that song and it was over. I just That's went all crazy Depeche Mode. <laughs> I mean, it was Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, all that stuff. I just went down that and I started trying to get as much as I, I possibly could. It wasn't like you could go on the internet at the time. I had to like save up my money and I could go down to the record store and buy the, the vinyl. I'd take it home and put it on my on my record player and listen in headphones at night. And I just do the odds and ends around my dad's store or chores to get money to go buy music. So, I mean, that was Duran Duran, Depeche Mode, um, all the stuff on MTV and then and later on Christian death and some of those yeah, bands. Christian right. Death and there was a bit, uh, I heard ministries Twitch album. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, you know, started more industrial stuff. And I liked ministry when they were doing like the, the, the softer stuff every day is Halloween and all that, that, that era of the band. And then I discovered this, uh, label called wax tracks from Chicago. And then I started getting into all of those bands and, it was the Skinny Puppy and Murder Inc. and Doubting Thomas and all these like other bands. And then after that, I started to listen to there was there was a 
a couple guys in town that owned a nightclub called the Dallas here in Bakersfield. Mm. And they went on to become the Baker boys. It was one power or these DJs. And so I started hanging out with them and I just started listening to this stuff called New York freestyle music. Sure. And, um, got into Stevie B and Noel <laughs> and company B, um, Trenier, all these ale, my fish, uh, Egyptian lover. And I started become, I started really getting into DJing and I, I got a job here in town at a local sound company and they had a DJ division and I would start DJing and I, and I really got into that. That was my next evolution into music. And I would just, I just buying vinyl, getting stuff, but I didn't have to pay for it. The boss paid for it because he needed it when we go out. So I would order all these vinyl and stuff. And I went down that musical journey. And then after all that was said and done, this album, Vulgar Display of Power, came out from Pantera. Sure. <laughs> and that was like, oh my God. I mean, before that, there was. Uh, well, there was Motley bands, and a lot of the bands. Motley and all know. those bands, you know, the metal yeah. band from the 80s. Sure. The two bands that got me into like grooving kind of stuff, I gotta be honest, were Helmet and that Vulgar Display of Power record. I mean, there's other ones. I'm probably not with Sepultura bands that I, I, I learned to Sepultura when I got in corn, but um, those two bands really sent me on like what is this i love it it's emotional it's heavy and i grew because i like to move my head i love music that makes me want to dance and that started me down that you know the path into more heavier music so at that point you were what, 15 or 16 yeah and then at a certain point while you're doing this you start working at a coroner's office at about 17 right 17 i was i listened yeah 17 i mean bulgars play power came way after that but yeah um uh, around 17, I started working in the coroner's office. And then after and, what, and what got you into that, by the way? Because such a strange, I mean, it's, it's not like I a career available. path that most people would pick, right? So well, there was a regional occupation, ROP here, regional occupation program. It was part of high school. And they had the coroner's office open. Most people went and they became like EKG techs or right, right. respiratory therapists and you know, nursing, stuff like that in the health industry. And that's what I was, it was called hospital health. And, but they had the coroner's office open and I was like, that sounds kind of crazy and interesting. And I've always been drawn towards dark things. So you had so, a fascination, I was going to say, to the darker side of life, because even lyrically, obviously, yeah. you know, you a lot of it was drawn from that. So what was it like working at the coroner's office? And at some point, you end up joining the band. You had to, you know, make a conscious decision to leave that career yeah. path. What, great decision, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> and, I mean, and join the band. It was very intriguing. I loved just coming in. I didn't know what was going to happen every day. I became very numb. Um, because it's, it's a lot of tragedy, man. It's like most of you going, if you're getting taken to the coroner's office, you died for some unknown reason. It's not of like age. because if you die and you, and you were sick or something, the doctor will sign a death certificate, then you don't have to be autopsies and you don't have to go through the coroner's system. Right. So it was just darkness all day, every day when I go in there and um, I never got to be involved in any of the homicides or any of that stuff because I was a minor and I could be, you know, some of the court and that stuff so that I couldn't be involved in those but all the other things the all the other bodies that I and I did kids and babies and it kind of jacked me up I didn't realize at the time I was that was kind of affecting me but it did it yeah, it's got to severely affect your psyche when you're around yeah, it well made me very cold and yeah. I my emotions shut down but I was really into it I'm like it wasn't something that like it was done on purpose we just didn't realize it and then I studied to be a coroner investigator. I really wanted to do that. And that, I didn't have to do autopsies. I go and investigate the death. So 
did the coroner's office. I went to school after high school. I went to the college, San Francisco College of Mortuary Science and became an embalmer. Got a job here in Shafter. And so I do both. I work at my day job was the coroner's office. And then at night I would volunteer and go out on calls to learn how to be a coroner investigator. And what was the strangest way that people would, you would see die? I mean, I'm sure there's some really strange things you saw and were exposed to. People, the, the weirdest thing, a coat machine falling on them. Uh, remember the old desks that had the heavy typewriters that would come up out of the bottom? Of remember course. Yeah. 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 And over and hit that typewriter fall on their head. The hammer die. It's just walking down the street, random aneurysm. Like, oh, there's all kinds of ways you can die. Or maybe appreciate life a lot more. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. And weirdly enough, you end up doing, I mean, you get into like collecting some of this stuff. Like you end up collecting like Ted Bundy's like VW bug. And so obviously that fascination with sort of the yeah, darker kind of, side it, of life continued on, right? It continued on. And yeah, but it was just, those are the things that kind of inspired me. That's where I found that's what triggered my creativity, I guess. I feel mm. more like more in the darker things. And, and darkness is not a bad thing. It's just evil's a bad thing, but dark things aren't. Yeah, definitely. So and, I got inspired by that and I was drawn more towards those kind of things. And then at what point did you meet Fieldy and how did you guys connect? I met Fieldy when I was like 10. <laughs> we, were, we were in town. Our dads played in bands together. Like I said, they were playing nightclubs. My dad did had this band and Reggie's uh fieldy's dad had a band called uh, reggie and alex who he, and reggie's dad was uh fieldy's dad was very very talented he would play guitar bass pedals and sing at the same time amazing there were two guys it was like it was crazy so we'd always see each other he'd come by my dad's music store his dad would clean the floors and stuff and because they had a carpet cleaning business everybody had a day gig you know <laughs> and uh we grew up together around each other. So I knew him for a long time. And at one point, did you start playing together and meet the other guys in the band? How did it all well, come about? Actually, I had a band here in town and Head and Monk were at the, the club that me and uh, that my band was playing at. They saw me there and they lost their singer. And they go, what about that dude that we saw in Bakersfield? And they, they got a hold of the drummer of another local band here, Andy, and he called me. And hey, said, these guys lost their singer. Would you be interested in trying out? And I was like, wow, I got to leave my band. I don't want to do this, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to go check this out. So I went down there and listened to what they were doing and was blown away and very inspired. And I went and tried out. And the first night they're like, yeah, this is going to work out. <laughs> and I, I left everything and I packed up a all my belongings and moved down to Huntington beach. And what was the scene like down there in Huntington beach when you moved down there, what were the bands that were happening at the time? Cause obviously you guys actually created a genre of music that really wasn't around yeah. at that point. Yeah. Well, there was mostly like, um, like punk rock music like that. Um, was it the adolescents? Was it, you know, I mean, it was like all those OC bands that, that yeah. came all those punk OC bands around there. That's how yeah, religion and Pennywise yeah. and all those bands, all, all those bands. And, uh, we had our own thing going. I mean, I remember our first big show at the Shrine. It was Corn, <laughs> Cadillac Tramps. Um, what was it? Cadillac Tramps and Pennywise. Wow. Like we, we were playing punk rock shows. No, we know what to do with this. And, and then we played shows with Sublime. Uh, we played shows with all these different like OC bands. No one knew what we were, but people knew they liked us. So we started building a following down there and Things just got bigger, but we would play all over. We played just not Orange County. We'd go down to San Diego. We'd come up to LA. 
we just play all up and down the coast and uh, the word got out. And, and did you feel at the time you were sort of recreating a new genre of music? Because obviously there, that music didn't really exist at that point. No, we were just doing what we do. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't like, oh, we're, we're trailblazing. Or this is just, hey, we got our own thing we're doing. And, and whenever we would play or go in rehearsal studios, if it was a new rehearsal studio, whatever, people would just look at us and be like, what? <laughs> There's definitely something special going on. Yeah. The way that you were singing obviously was different. So unique at that point. Did it I'm, take you a while to find your voice? Yeah, it did. Yeah, it took a while. Definitely. Took, and talk so, me a little bit about getting the record deal on and, and all the way, you know, working up towards that. Well, yeah. So we went up and down the coast. We we're playing these gigs and we actually got signed. And the first time we talked to a label that really wanted to we be really serious about that. They don't want to do it like a demo deal or something like that. Yeah. Um, was Immortal Records and a guy named Paul Pontius came to us and started talking to us at a club called Dream Street. It was an ocean beach down in San Diego. So that's where we actually got like they first started talking about it, talking to us. And that's was our first. That's our deal. We got our first deal um, with Immortal Records. And uh, was it a development deal initially or was it really? Oh, it was, it's like, we're going to give you a record deal. We're going to get you're going to do some records and this is the deal. Yeah. So we were really excited because we went we went in. I mean, when I first got into the band after after the uh, after I tried out and I said, you're in a band two weeks later, we were in the studio with Ross doing our first demo. Russ Robinson, yeah. Yeah. Incredible. And we did that demo and we handed them out and we went and played all these clubs and all these shows up and down, like I said, the coast. And we pulled stickers and we stuck stickers everywhere. There was no internet at that time. Yeah. And we back did, then you had to flyer the streets. It was a whole yeah. different way of promoting we things. Yeah. Promoted it, promoted, promoted, and got this deal and then had to start over because once you get a deal, it's just not Huntington Beach and up and against the whole world. Yeah. So did this deal and we were really excited. We went into a studio, a rehearsal studio, and did pre-production with Ross. And we recorded the first record up at Indigo Ranch in Malibu. And did you know right away? Did you feel like it was magic? Did you feel like we always know. thought there was magic? I mean yeah, yeah. the first day when I tried out, we all got goosebumps. Ross was there and he's like, We gotta get you in the studio, man. You're it. Because I was so different than the rest of the guys. Yeah. I mean, I walked in in some ripped up jeans and like hoop earrings and makeup and a cat suit. Like I was like, this <laughs> as hell. At that time, I was like, really, that was my thing. I didn't want, I was a boy or I was both. Yeah, yeah. Um, very feminine, but I was, you know, I'm not, I know my gender, but I really liked walking that line. Um, then I got in the band and I was like, yeah, this doesn't work. It was more of my, you know, neuromantic kind of thing. And it just kind of melted. I got, I wore this green army jumpsuit. It was really grimy and big combat boots. And then I was like, oh, this is it. I was trying to figure out myself. And then I'm like, what do I do? I don't like this, but what do I hate? I, and I became something that I really hated because of high school, I got picked on. I started wearing track seats and that reminded me of John. <laughs> but it worked for some reason. It worked. And, and you know, the rest is history. Yeah, definitely. We did, we did the, uh, we did the record and we were all scared, but we knew we were doing something magic and, Went in there, started recording, and every day it was just pinching me. I was like, oh my God, I'm making a record. This is insane. And we knew when we were making it, something was very special about making that record. We knew that we were doing something different and it was magic. But we're just a bunch of kids having fun and just getting drunk and retarded and just living that rock and roll lifestyle. It was amazing. Well, you, you look back on it, I think actually next year marks the 30th year of the band. 
Uh, does it feel like it's been 30 years? It's, it's crazy, right? Any no. like great plans to celebrate the 30 year anniversary next year, by I the way? No, we're, we're going to have to figure something out. But yeah, yeah, 30, 30 years is a band. And Incredible. then it'll be 30 and 2024 from the first record release. So, uh, you know, that it's just mind blowing. I just can't believe it was that long ago. But, you know, I've been very, very fortunate and blessed and lucky to just keep doing this. And the people really relate to that record in such a an intense way yeah and along the way obviously so many great highlights i mean let's talk about a few by the way woodstock i mean woodstock 99 regardless of what happened for you guys it was a great show it was uh, a great show it was, it, it was one of my favorites it just so massive so big at that time and uh what do you remember about the show just the size uh, and the crowd the waves because it was following the sound because there's mm. so many people they could just they were jumping and it was just going in waves and just kids just having a good time there was no craziness going on at our on our day um it just seemed like a really it was just a great experience and you know we're coming off we were recording issues at the time and um we hadn't played a show in over a year so to come back and not play a show and then go to that that was crazy i think you even played songs that night with no lyrics right you were yeah. just sort of yeah. like vibing on it we were vibing on it yeah that's Smile. amazing. That was cool. It was like our whole thing. We really just had this carefree attitude. Like, you're not going to tell us what to do and we're going to do whatever we want. And that was kind of like the un, un, like theme underneath the band. We were just like, we make our music this way and we do things our way and we're going to dress the way we want. And, you know, it was, everything was like rebellion. Yeah. Yeah. Do you miss, uh, were the festivals definitely your, your favorite part of touring at this point, or do you like playing to the intimate crowds? I love both. I love playing in small crowds. I love the huge ones. So it just depends on what kind of high you want. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of like the huge ones are just super intense, like out-of-body experiences. And then, like, you can have that same intense out-of-body experience in a small club. It depends on how tense the crowd is and how, how much tension and vibe is in the room. By the way, when you're playing now, I'm sure it's multi-generational, right? You're seeing yeah. parents and their kids. And oh, yeah. at some point, there's three generations of people that are watching porn. It's yeah. got to feel incredible to see two or three generations of people. And the new fans are obviously appreciating the music because the band now feels to me bigger than ever before. You just did a, a, a couple nights here with System of Down, two nights sold out yeah. uh, at the stadium in L.A., which is incredible. So 30 years later, the band's bigger than ever, right? Yeah. And so to look at it, that audience, how does it feel to see multi-generations of I people mean, enjoying the band now? It's, it's amazing. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's transcendent gender. Like the oldest ones passed it down to their kid and now they got kids and they're passing it to their kids. Like, Hey, check, this is what I was into. Do you like this? You know, are you into this? I even do it with my own kids. Like yeah. bands that I were in, that I was into that my boys are into, I passed it on, you know, check this out. And they, they listen to all kinds of like my youngest Zeppi loves. Yes. <laughs> Who would have thought? <laughs> it's it's amazing. It's just all these different bands. Um, he loves like the Brothers Johnson and the Meters and like all this different old school stuff. But they all love the new hip hop and rap stuff. So it's just like I love watching my kids because they can have it all right here. Like we yeah. didn't have that, but at their fingers they can explore. And I like watching them taste the picks and choices of music. It's really. But cool. are they discovering music through you or just through their own means? I started them on their journey. Okay. And now, now they're now they're in it because they're teenagers now, so they're in it. Sure, sure, sure. So, talking about this new record, by the way, it's incredible. So, the fourteenth record, Requiem. You work yeah. with the amazing producers over the years, Michael Beinhorn, who also worked uh, 
with a band that I play with, with Courtney Love for a while. So I, I've heard a lot of Michael Beinhardt stories. Yeah. A really tough producer. And obviously for this record, you work with Chris Collier. So talk to me about this record, how it came about. I think it was right around the time of lockdown when you guys started working on this record, yeah. right? We got in there because we were all going crazy, staying home. And, you know, we got Chris involved. He wanted to, wanted him to help produce. And his uh, buddy Fluff, who was the engineer, um, and we just wanted to make a record, you know, it was born out of like, we're going crazy in a house and I want some normalcy. Let's go in a studio and forget about the craziness going on in the world. And that's exactly what it did. We go in there and we have fun and we're just writing. I remember I worked with Chris when we were doing the nothing. Um, I was doing vocals. I had to do vocal. I like to do vocals by myself. And uh, I'm assuming at one in the morning, two in the morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's when I do it. And, <laughs> right. and I needed engineer because yeah. engineers. So I went through a couple engineers and then, uh, Collier came up because he's done stuff with Head and stuff with Ray and I'm all yeah have him come down and me and him hit it off and I was like that's the band I'm like I know you all love Collier you want to do this with Collier and give him a shot and everybody said yeah so we had him come down and we had a blast we just started making music and he was more of a like Chris was uh, makes records in the box and I'm an old school guy and I like making them on tape yeah analog <laughs> analog so yeah. we we uh started coming up together we worked together me and chris and fluff we just worked together and came out with a way to make this a hybrid so we could the best of everything and i remember chris coming in and starting to put plugins on stuff i was like well stop <laughs> i'm all man look right there there's the real thing right there and he's like yeah and then it was like he's he he's works in regular ones but he gets he was used to just being looking in a, living in the screen so getting to experiment and i'm like let's listen to this let's listen to that and then like he's like yeah that's better this is better let's i want to steer the boat and i want you to produce this and let's do something that sounds amazing and uh i really get involved in the production side of the record but as we got into the studio to write right in the tunes this was the first time i sat down with the band from the first note and was in the room with them because previously in the in the stuff that was going on in my life i couldn't be there so um the work the way we worked, which is so much better because the band usually when they're working with Nick Rescue Linux, they go to Nashville, write tunes, send it to me. If I was vibing, yeah, if not, no, but that took time. And then there I'm like, I like this. I like this. I like this. And we all got excited and we wrote, we wrote this record and we did. But Head and Ray live in Nashville, right? So the process, yeah. the guys flew, would come to, to your studio. And, later, so, yeah. and we all got together and we did it different too. We got together for like, 10 days a month mm. and then the rest they go home and we take a break and we did like five or six sessions and we got the record recorded and then i did my thing and that took a couple months for the vocals but it just all it just all came together and it was beautiful and we were all having fun and just forgetting about every, all the chaos going on outside in a way because there is so much chaos and there was so much chaos going on in the world at that point you think there was very little pressure with time constraints with this record was, led to a different type of record for you in a way right it completely did. Yeah. Because I've always, I'd always get screwed at the end of the records, always, because it's like the, the band has all the time in the world they need to write and record. Once that's done, then it's vocal time. And then for some reason, all the manager we had, but not this one, thank God, but they booked tours. So I was under the gun. I had to get it done so the record could be out so we could go on tour and all that stuff. So this record, we didn't know when we were going to tour again. We didn't know what was going on. We were just writing music and there was no, there was no such thing as time constraints. So it just naturally came out kind of cool. It wasn't rushed and I could breathe and I could take the time to do the kind of 
vocal, you know, there's so many vocal tracks on these. I, I build these huge beds with all these different microphones and all this fun stuff that's no glory work, but it took a long time, but it was worth it in the end. Um, uh, though I will say for a band that uh, was sitting around, you guys kept very busy. You, you did a lot of live streams. There was a show yeah. you just did in the church. Um, yeah, yeah. By the way, the Alice in Chains cover of Wood, one of the, the best covers ever. Uh, and I think that Alice in Chains tribute is actually one of the better award shows I've ever seen. Oh, that Jerry was Contrella's, Yeah, he was on the show. Jerry was on the show, I guess, uh, three months ago. We talked about it a little bit, but what an incredible show. And you guys were great on that show. Oh, man. Everybody that did all the bands that did those tunes, I was blown away. Yeah, amazing. So incredible. Fishbone, the Fishbone version, we talked about it, me and Jerry, but how incredible. But uh, so you're really busy. Uh, and, and this record is actually just a nine song record. At some point, like, was it a conscious decision to keep it really short? Or did you, yeah. did you did you track 15 songs and pick the best nine? We tracked about 14, I think it was 15, 14 or 15 songs and picked the best nine. We wanted them all to be insanely great. And for me, I was, I was saying, we got to keep this album short, man, because people have the attention span of a gnat. <laughs> it's true. You, a half hour, 35 minutes, you can sit down and listen to a record. After that, your brain starts wandering. I don't care how good the song is. Yeah. You're going to start doodling on your computer you're going to start doing and you're going to go somewhere else and you're going to skip songs and then oh that was a great album whatever it was just like this album slaps you across the face and we're out and it just seems like that's how it needs to be well when you work, work with let's say ross robinson or michael byenhorn or chris i mean how do they differ and how does this record differ in terms of the production for you i mean with ross it's all internal turmoil and getting the right performance he likes to poke he likes to poke at you. That's his, that's his process, which yeah. is fine. Yeah. That's how he does it. Vinehorns is insane. And I love him. And we still talk. I talk to him all the time. I, he is hands down the best producer I've ever worked with. Most frustrating. But when I was all said and done, I just can't tell you how great he is because it's brilliant. Drum sounds for three months. Yeah. But <laughs> listen to him. Yeah. yeah that record on Untouchables, I call it the heavy metal Asia. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds so good. And, but but um, such a different process, obviously, than this record, right? Yeah, 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 totally. But he sat there from day one when Bindhorn it was all about production, pre-production. Let's get the songs right. Let's get them all good. And then once you get in the studio, then it's just days of getting the right sounds and experimenting and making an amazing piece of art. And that's what we were doing. And, and do you think like, mentally with this record, you were in a little bit of a different place than some of the other records, just going through the pandemic? And yeah, obviously, I know you're a huge advocate of mental health uh, you know, issues oh. and, and helping people with that, too. So what were you dealing with with this record in terms of the writing process and going through what we've all been going through? I was so happy when we were writing because I missed my boys. I'm in a way better place mentally than I've ever been. And I was prisoner in my house for months. I wanted mm. to get out and write and be creative. And so it was a total different vibe. It was in a very different place. It's very, you know, I'm not used to that. It was, it feels weird being happy kind of. So yeah. <laughs> um, I was, that was the vibe and we were all getting along great. And everyone was, we were like kids again and we would get done with a song and they come out, we listen to it. We all get goosebumps. We'd be a high five and act like little kids in the studio still. So that's, that was, I don't know. The experience was so different. It was just pleasant. The writing process always starts with a riff to you, right, Jonathan? Yes, always starts with a riff. Let's talk about the tour for a while. Um, a couple of dates with System of Down coming up, um, which is great. And so you just finished the two shows. I think by the time this airs, it'll be sometime in March. But the two shows just happened in L.A. 
Yeah. Uh, how were the shows, by the way? They were amazing. Amazing. Sold out both night. You have a history with the band, obviously, with System of Down. Yeah, yeah, I love those guys. Um, we played with them for years, and uh, I love their band. It's just I like bands that got their own thing. Like yeah. you one note, and you know that band. <laughs> <laughs> you can sing and hear one word, and the playing, and you know, oh, that's System. I mean, that's my thing. I like I latch on the people that got amazing creativity and can do something different. Definitely. Yeah. And so the, the tour actually kicks off March 4th, I believe, right? Mostly arenas. Yeah. And, and I think it starts in uh, Springfield and it goes all the way up to, I believe it's like, uh, I, I think you end in Wichita. So yeah. um, tell me what you're excited about it. Will there be a lot, if we come to see you play, you're going to be a lot, of, a lot of songs off the new record. Is it going to be a mix? It's probably hard to choose what you're going to play at this point. With it's such so hard, man. We got 14 records, man. <laughs> Incredible. All right. So we're going to play some new songs and we'll just do, a, a, you know, We'll try to pick some off each record, just get some different songs for people to hear, but even probably the hits and the new songs, because that's what people like to hear and maybe a, an abstract one thrown in there. But uh, it's just about, it's like, you know, when you go to a corn show, it's, it's just a gathering. I say on stage all the time, it's a gathering of like-minded people that we just come to a, a place and forget about everything and just vent and have a good time and what it's all about. So I get excited every time it doesn't get old. It really doesn't. I get up on stage. I see people having such a great time. And I don't know. It does something to me. I, I come off stage so happy and pumped and it, I can't sleep. I mean, that's pretty much what got me on this, <laughs> on this schedule. After a show, I can't sleep. I don't go to sleep till like 10 in the morning. I'm still running, riding high on the adrenaline after all those shows. Do you still have any, any effects, by the way? Because I know a lot of well wishes were sent to you in September with COVID. Do you, are yeah, there like long-term effects still? Yeah, I still, I'm still, I, I think I got that long COVID stuff. I'm still fatigued like crazy. So I'm really? okay. doing the best I can, but I mean, I'm alive and yeah. you know, I gotta look at, you know, hopefully in time, this will get better. I guess I was going to say, you probably feel okay about touring now. Cause you already, you know, went through COVID and had, and yeah. so how do you, how do you feel about touring in this day and age? Do you feel like, you know, at a certain point you got to live your life and get on with it? Or, you know, I'm gonna live my life and get on with it. I, yeah. I, I am definitely cater my life around not getting sick though because if i get sick there's no show this yeah. is covid or not that's been my life my whole the whole career i stay i got my own bus i stay away from people and on purpose because if i get sick there's no one to fill in for me like with the other guys when they all got sick with covid we had you know people on standby they flew out instantly they could fill in and we could do a show but um with me i gotta like i gotta be careful yeah mm, for sure i've been but it's not to the point where i'm like a year ago, that was like, I was freaking out. <laughs> like, I don't want to get this. Up. And I go out on tour and I get it. And there you go. But now you're feeling better, which is great. Yeah, yeah, and, man. I just got to get over the fatigue. That's it. Did you think there'll be plans to play with Fieldy again in the future coming up? I hope, yeah. I hope if he, he figures out what he's got to go through and everything is, you know, he's in a good place. Yeah. I'm, we never, like, this was just, he needed to take some time off. Yeah. And that's yeah. all it is. Definitely. And when he is ready, he'll be ready. Awesome. Yeah. And in terms of a solo record, we know you put out your solo record about four years ago. It took about yeah. 10 years to come out. Yeah, <laughs> so do you feel like that's something else that you'd be putting, you know, do you feel like you'll be working towards that? Yeah, know? man. I want to go back and do some, I want to do another record. Um, I just got to get in and start creating and figure out what I want to do. But um, making that record was, was fun. Uh, just working with all the world instrument music and get different players and all the stuff that I did. It was, it was really, really fun. And I love doing different stuff. 
and it gives me a chance to go down the road and I get to play small clubs and yeah, theater and stuff. And it's a different vibe than with corn because corn's is, you know, it's full a machine. to 11 all the way <laughs> all the time <laughs> with my solo stuff. It was more laid back and um, it was a vibe and um, it was really fun. Awesome. Well, congrats on the number one active rock record at, at this point. Requiem. It's, it's incredible. The record's great. The tour is kicking off. I yeah. appreciate you. Uh, like I said, this is my first late night interview, Jonathan. So it's, thank you for doing that for me, man. Yeah, of course. And, and I appreciate it. And by the way, there's a, there's a history with spin magazine. So yeah. I, I, from what I remember, there was a photo shoot you were doing years ago. Uh, yeah. I forgot to talk to you about it, but we should touch on it for a minute because this right. is spins podcast. So talk to me about that shoot that happened years ago and the history you have with the magazine. <laughs> Dude, that's fine. Because I don't want to bad talk, bad mouth. Spin. No, but it's all good. It's a fun. It's a great story. It's a by the crazy way, crazy story. The editors there, and they wanted to do a certain kind of way of pictures. We're jumping around in a mosh pit or something, and we're like, "Okay, we're corn. We're gonna do things our way or no way." We're like, "No, we're not doing that." And so it starts getting into this thing that starts to escalate. And one of the band members got into it with the editor, and we walked off. We said, "No, forget you. We don't give fuck you. We don't care." And we're just like forget this. this we're not going to do something we don't want to do and because they were forcing us we felt stupid they wanted us to jump and be all and we're not no that's not us so long story short spin gets back at us takes our heads and photoshops us on monkey suits on the cover and that was our spin cover and they held it corn gorilla something and whatever and they made the editor made them you know it was neil strauss did that came out on the road with us when we went oh, to yeah. Japan, and he turned in the the he turned in the the uh, the piece, and they said, "Well, you didn't talk enough shit." So they made made Neil talk some shit in it, and it was, oh, it was really? just a bad situation. <laughs> it never needed to be that way, but you know, we were young kids and being stupid. But yeah, they had at that time, Spin had their vision of what they wanted that cover to be, and we were like, "No, it's not happening that way, man." I don't care who you are. Well, a lot of people have changed with the magazine. It's a much different thing. Oh, I, I, I believe it. I believe it. It's, it happens, but you know, it just felt like in that day and age, honestly bands got pushed around by all these like magazines and MPC and like we're giving you free content you know <laughs> what wh where is this going don't cap attitudes with us yeah yeah and that's what was going on so that's what happened and there's no bad blood it was all good no i actually I'm, thought glad it was no I'm just glad we didn't have to fight because it was about ready everybody the band and our crew and that crew we we're getting ready to fight <laughs> it's nuts it would be a much different scenario now, for sure, I can assure you. Oh, definitely. It's all good fun. We're just being stupid kids, man. We're out of our mind. We're like yeah. 26. So, like, that's what well, make sure, make sure you pick up the new record, Rec Room. March 4th, the tour kicks off. Hey, brother, I hope to see you one of these shows coming up. Thanks for doing this for us. You too. I appreciate it. All right, Got Jonathan. It, see you soon. Appreciate have it. Night, Take care. Bye. Bye. You're listening to Lips LA with Scott Lips. Well, that was great. Jonathan Davis of Corn, 40 million records sold. Next year marks 30 years of Corn. What a great guy, great hang. If you like the show, make sure you tell a friend or a few friends about the show. And if you could give it a rating and review of hopefully five stars on iTunes, that would be great. It's really important to us as the show is free. I am on Cameo, so make sure you check me out there. I appreciate you tuning in. We have a lot of exciting stuff coming up for you this month. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys soon. Over and out. Hey, how'd it do, y'all? I'm Uncle Drank, star of the ballad of Uncle Drank. It is a scripted musical podcast about the life and times of me, fictional golf and Western country music pioneer, Uncle Drank. 
The series also stars Luke Wilson, Brian Kelly, Chelsea Lynn, Kinky Friedman, and Billy Zane as a talking blender named Blendy. You can find The Ballad of Uncle Drank on Sirius XM, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.